Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Well, let's pray. Our gracious God, in the middle of a week, we stop and pause and set aside the many uh, valid things that call for our attention. But they're things that are limited to time. They're not eternal. They're important, but they're not the important things. They are big, perhaps, to us, but they're not infinite. You are timeless. You are the, the thing that our heart must be focused on, that we, we must be right with you. And you are infinite. You are our creator, our king, our judge, our sustainer. You are the source of our life. You are our redeemer. Every believer here this evening, looking back on the writings of Old and New Testament writers, we see throughout your word such a perfect preparation for the Messiah and then the coming and the accomplishment and then the letters to churches full of people like us who look back and wonder, could it really be true? Could it be true for us? And you explain and lay out for them in such wonderfully clear and deep and sublime ways the truths of Christ and how he changes everything. So we come to you, God. We want our whole lives to be part of that great doxology now to him. We want our Mondays through Saturdays to be expressions of worship and not just Sunday. God, we want our study of your word privately and publicly to be pleasing. We ask that you would help us to see who you for who you really are, that your worth would grip us, that we'd be so aware of you that in a sense, any instruction in worship would almost be unnecessary because from within, with your law written on our hearts, we would long to do the very things that the biblical principles direct us to do, to be self-forgetful, 
to bow our hearts before the amazing majesty that belongs to you alone and to your love before bowing hearts before your mercy. You have conquered your people. You have drawn us with the cords of love. So give us what we need to be able to love you back in a way that you find pleasing, acceptable, honoring. Help us, Father, as you have helped believers throughout the many generations in different places who come to you praying in different languages than our own, and yet you have met them. So meet us and take us by the hand and walk us through your word again. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're looking again at the theme of worship, and we've defined that um, somewhat, maybe a, a simple definition, would be that worship is being, um, you know, struck with the worth of God, focusing on the worth of God in such a way that um, bows the heart, that causes us to be glad to forget ourselves and to be aware of Him. That causes us to live differently, to serve Him, to obey Him, to, uh, to honor Him, and live aware of His worth, even in the way that we treat His children or the person sitting next to us. We talked about worship as a lifestyle for a Christian, and that's fundamental because if that's in place, then all the other aspects of worship do tend to flow naturally. So we can see that worship on Sunday morning with other believers is something that would come much more, if we could say naturally, much more naturally to us if all week long we've been living viewing the worth of God. And if we've lived all week long viewing our worth, you know, living impressed with ourselves, then when we come to church on Sunday and someone tells us that we're going to spend the next hour or two forgetting ourselves and being impressed with someone else, there's like this jar, you know. It's like you come up to a building and the step between your Monday through Saturday and then your Sunday, it's like it's a big step. It's a jarring, you know, difference. So all of life that can be done with God's approval in the, in the life of a Christian can be offered to God as worship. It can be done aware of God's worth for love of that God, expressing that God's worth to him in the way we do everything. Even, Paul says, eating and drinking. Now we're ready to look at a topic that probably comes to your mind when you first hear uh, that we're going to talk about worship. It, we, we tend to think immediately, probably not only, but immediately of the issue of worshiping God in song, especially together, although privately uh, that's quite appropriate as well. And the principles we have for worshiping God in song apply also to, uh, you know, corporately apply, many of them apply to the individual. When we come together on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or anytime we come together to worship with other believers, singing or expressing God's worth to him through song is something that every Christian can participate in directly and not just indirectly. I mean, there are other things we participate in. So while the preacher's preaching on Wednesday night, normally it would be Chuck, I would be sitting by Misty, and I would have my Bible open and my pen and my notebook. I just find it hard to stay focused without a pen and a notebook. So you may not need that, but I can keep track of the key points and, and the, the things that God is really pointing his finger to in my life when Chuck is preaching to all of us. And so listening is something I have to be active in. Praying, even when someone else is praying, like on Sunday morning in our corporate prayer time, you may not be leading out, but you ought to be praying with the person that's leading out. So that there's active participation. But singing is different, isn't it? It's not just that you're responding and 
trying to stay focused, you're doing it. You become the choir. We, we don't have a choir loft on purpose. You're the choir. So you have the opportunity to look at truths, to stir your heart, and to choose to express God's work worth back to him, not just as an individual, but in harmony with everyone else around you. And because it's something that you have to really participate in, that you're the one that's doing it, we want to be very clear on how and why and what pleases the Lord and what doesn't. When we talk about worship and we talk about worshiping God in the way we sing or the music on a Sunday morning, it is, of course, quite a hot topic. It's, it's hotly debated. And we tend to think of kind of the externals. So, you know, what music style? So contemporary versus traditional. You know, hymns versus choruses versus psalms. Liturgy or, you know, unstructured. And those things are not unimportant, but they are not nearly as important as, as the things that are underneath them, the things that are, that are the foundation of those things. You can go to a church that is very liturgical, and whether that's what you enjoy or don't enjoy, that can be a, a vehicle for real worship. And you can go to a church that doesn't have any liturgical element, whether you like that more or not, that can be a vehicle for real worship. You can sing choruses in a way that please the Lord. You can sing hymns in a way that pleases the Lord. You can sing psalms in a way that pleases the Lord. And you can do all three of those in ways that displease the Lord and are rejected. So obviously, I think we all understand. It's not, those aren't the key questions. Those are secondary. But I do think that when we think of worship and song, it's such a hot button because of a couple of things. One is singing in a church and the music that a church offers to people that come to that church. It is such a powerful tool. It moves the emotions. It can be a tool that's used for good or for bad, but it's a powerful tool. It's, it affects us. And so the style of music that is embraced and used in worship, especially in the American or the Western kind of evangelical church, it can become a thing that we manipulate and we use almost as a marketing you know, technique. So many churches available in town come to this church because this church offers this kind of music. And the church down the street says, if you don't like that kind of music, we've got this kind of music. And it's like the church goes to the culture and says, what do you want? And if you want this, well, we can be this. And music is such a powerful tool. It can be abused or it can be used correctly. But the abuse of it is when we use it as kind of a, a marketing tool, a way to sell our church, a way to build our membership. But another reason that I think the debate between, for example, traditional versus contemporary music and worship is such a, a hotly debated topic is that oftentimes those that press the, the older crowd, which generally not really, really old, but like the, the middle old, all right? So like we call them middle-agers, but they're not living to 120. So a 60-year-old is probably not middle-age, but we still call them middle age. But we don't call a 90-year-old a middle age, you know? We, we say, I don't know, autumn of life, silver fox. I don't know what we call them. So when I get there, I'll figure out a name for me if I get there. Usually churches are controlled by the 50 and the 60-year-olds, and they have music that they like. So let's say they like more traditional music. They say, we think this is more appropriate. And the younger crowd says, why do you say that? We think this is more appropriate. And the younger people may have in mind something very contemporary, something quite you know, lively and, and powerful in the sense of, you know, just volume. And so they, they want the drums and the electric guitars and they want they, you know, they want a rock band. And the older people are horrified because they think a piano and hymns are the only thing that please the Lord. And both groups are arguing. One reason I think that it is argued over so often is the older group fails to see 
that sometimes the younger group has a point. I'm not arguing for a rock band, but what I'm saying is this. We can like more traditional music if we're older, not for the right reasons, not for biblical principles, but because it's the stuff that we're used to. When we were 20-year-olds, it might have been contemporary. But now that we're in our 50s or 60s, now it's traditional. But it was contemporary back then. The question is not, you know, what's our tradition or what do we like? The question is, what would please God most? And how do we bring that down into our cultural setting? Obviously, while singing in a foreign language would please the Lord in a country that speaks that language, it wouldn't please the Lord for us to sing Gregorian chant in Latin and everyone around us to say, what in the world are we saying? I actually listen to Gregorian chant on my iPod in the mornings because it's just kind of quiet background noise, you know? But if you ask me, what are they singing? I don't know what they're singing. I guessed a few times. I guessed completely wrong. I have forgotten all the Latin I learned. Jeremy Walker knows. Sometimes I shoot him a text. say, what's this one? He goes, oh, that means this. I'm like, oh, that's okay. That's good. I'm always afraid since it's Gregorian chant that the Roman Catholics are singing something I would really be upset with. So I'm kind of glad with my ignorance. So there's this quiet noise in the background. But would that be pleasing to the Lord here? even if the content was perfect. Well, no, we say we have to be thoughtful of our context. Jeremy Walker, as an example, pastors in the south edge of, on the southern edge of London, a place called Crawley. Well, nobody goes to church in Crawley. Nobody goes to church in the UK, but especially in England. And so Jeremy, when people come to his church, they're coming from an unchurched background. They don't know the hymns. And so when they sing the hymns, they sing from the same hymnal we use, but Jeremy has been, for the last decade, has been rewriting the hymns to remove all archaic language. That's quite difficult. It's difficult to do that and keep the beauty of the poetry sometimes. And Jeremy does appreciate the poetry. So he's been laboring over this. He's done a, three or four hundred of our hymnal. He's updated them. Why? Jeremy's not a traditionalist even though he's very traditional to some people, he's a man that believes in certain biblical principles for worship and song. But one of the things he believes is we should not put unnecessary hurdles between people and God by using maybe archaic English language. I think that he is very right. But he doesn't jettison the hymnal and, you know, and put the rock group in because the culture says, I'm more excited with that. So how do we make our decisions? Are there principles? And if we're not going to just say the old stuff's better or the new stuff's better, well, what do we say? Well, the fundamental principle is this. We want to offer God the kind of worship in song that he is pleased with, that he wants. Remember, we use this illustration that when it comes to Worship, it's an expression of love. And so and it's love giving, not just receiving. Primarily, our focus should be what we're bringing to God, not what we come to Sunday morning to get from God, though we will get more than we brought, but we come to give. So we come to give God worship through song. And when we come, we don't, because love moves us, we're not happy just to appear to be bringing a gift. We really want to bring the gift that the God we love wants. There's a very different approach to giving a gift when you are like at a business party and it's, you know, uh, well, let, let's say we're having weddings. So let's say it's a, it's a wedding shower, okay? And uh, not in the church, but just a wedding shower. So you are an adult, you're a grown-up, you have kids who are old enough to, ha to get married and have kids, and your, your friends that you've been friends with for years, their kid's getting married. So the Joneses look at the Smiths and they say, so when is your daughter getting married? Oh, it's coming up soon. And the Joneses think, we got to get something. Well, what, do their, what would their daughter like? Oh, I, I got no idea. You know, she'll have a registry, but I, I don't know. I don't Just get her anything, just anything. Because the goal is the Smiths need to see that we're nice people and we sent a little present because they would be offended if we don't send anything at all. 
So the present is really not carefully thought out based on love for that friend's daughter. It's more about love for yourself. I, I want the Smiths to know that we're good people and we don't ignore their kid's wedding. It's very different, let's say, a newlywed and the first Christmas is coming up and the guy is thinking, what would she like? And I want it to be special. It's our first Christmas. And she's thinking the same thing. And there's so much planning going into it because you want the gift to be something they really are pleased with. You don't just want to appear to be a person who gives gifts when those are appropriate. When we worship the Lord, we don't want to just go through the motions of worship so that we can go back to work Monday and get back on with important things of life. We want to bring God things that please him if we're believers, which is a good place to stop and say, if to you the theme of worship is something you're doing like the person buying a gift for a friend's kid, I, I do need to show up and do this because that's appropriate. But I don't really ever ask myself, is he pleased? It is a good time to stop and ask, do you know him at all? You've heard of him. You've read about him, you talk about him, you sing his hymns, but have you ever been brought out of slavery by him? Has your heart been made alive by him? That's the principle. Psalm 119, verse 108 says this. The psalmist says, oh, accept the free will. The word oh is so good. God, I'm, I'm desperate. Oh, God, oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth. Not the offerings I bring to, to, to appease you for my sin. Not a sin offering. No, you've already washed me with the blood of the Lamb of God. So now I bring a free will offering, something that I'm not compelled to do. But I freely, gladly bring an offering as an expression of love and gratitude. And I lay it there. But here the psalmist says, Oh God, accept the free will offering of my mouth, of my lips. He's talking about his praises. And this is a psalm, and so that would certainly include singing. So we want to know what the principles are that would guide us to offer God the, the free will offerings of our lips that he would be pleased with. Uh, in this study, Behold your God, rethinking God biblically. There is a chapter on worship, and it says more than we could say tonight. In Clyde Cranford's book, Because We Love Him, one of the last, toward the end of the book, maybe the last chapter, second to the, second to the last chapter, there's a chapter on worship, and Clyde has a lot of helpful things there. You can look at those on your own time. But for tonight, I want us to try to hit five, five things of great, which are of great significance if your worship in song is to be pleasing to the Lord. Number one, if our worship in song is to be pleasing to the Lord, then it's going to have to include all of you. It's not enough to have truth, worship Him in truth and spirit. It's not enough to be sincere. It has to be something you're bringing to God and all of you is engaged. And I mean all of you spiritually. All of you, mind, heart, and will has been bought by Christ. All of you, your mind, your heart, your will has been taken out of a kingdom of a tyranny of darkness and brought into the kingdom of grace. All of you has been affected by a new birth. There is a new identity that affects all of you. This new identity changes the way I think and desire and choose. All of you is united to Christ. My heart is united to Christ. My thoughts are now united to Christ. My will is united to Christ. All of you has been washed. And all of you has been commanded to come and worship God, to sing to him with all of you. Now there's a definite order in these, mind, heart, and will. I want to be a bit more specific about the heart because that really comes into play with singing. So here's the order, the mind. We know that truth from God 
grasped by the mind, focused on, concentrated on, looked at, understood, that's the, that is the source of all that flows in worship. If you skip the mind and simply go right to the emotions, then the worship that you're offering God is very likely a worship that God rejects. That's really important, we're going to see in a few minutes, when it comes to how we sing, because music, one writer said, uh, is the language of our emotion. It expresses it. It also stirs it up. So there are ways for emotion to be involved in worship that is very pleasing to the Lord. There are ways for emotion to be involved in worship that is displeasing to the Lord. We want to be careful to discern. It starts in the mind. The mind must be fully engaged. So we come to church, we sit down. One of Chuck, me, AC, Ron, whoever's preaching, stands up and says, our opening hymn is, you open, you look, you've got to, you've got by your will, you've got to grab hold of your thoughts and say, no, no, you know, you, you kind of wrestle them, hog tie them, you bring them or you bend them upon the topic of these truths that you're singing. And so you sing what the old writers, you know, you sing thoughtfully. All right. That doesn't mean don't yell in your neighbor's ear. It means you thoughts, truths grasped with the mind must be the fuel that is going to, you know, that is going to sustain the fire of the emotions or of the desires or an old word of the affections. Truth. God seeks those who will worship him in truth. Truth stirs. Truth fuels. Truth guides. But that's not enough. We cannot only offer God a worship of the intellect. Second, the desires or the affections, the love of your heart or emotions. These are impacted by what you're thinking about and they are stirred to be engaged in what you're singing. Without the affections, God is unpleased. We know that Christ said that there are Pharisees, they're religious people, who are very close to God with their mouths, but their hearts are far from Him. We have all, I'm sure, mumbled through, mindlessly sang a really wonderful hymn. It meant nothing to us. Our hearts were far off. Our minds were drifting. We didn't engage the intellect. We didn't engage the desires and loves of our heart. And then there's the will. God has given a human the ability to choose, to determine things. And the will is guided by the heart. John Flavel, the Puritan, in his little book, uh, Keeping the Heart, he said... The distance from the intellect to the heart, from, from what you're thinking about to what you love and treasure, he said, sometimes that can be a, it looks like 12 inches, he says, it can be a long journey to get things from here to here. But then, he said, to get things from here, the heart, what you love, into your hands and feet, into actions, he said, oh, that's, a, that's just a short skip. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Religious Affections, defines different kinds of emotions. He talks about passions and affections. We'll look at that in a minute. But when Edwards described the affections, the deepest desires of the soul, okay, the deepest loves, not the surface stirrings of my emotion, the deep things, not so easily stirred, but enduring. Whereas, you know, the other things, they, you know, we get really worked up. And then they fade away just as quickly. Edwards said that in describing man's soul, the mind, the affections, the will, Edwards said there's hardly any difference between the affections and the will. It's almost like we have the mind and then affections will, heart will. Because Edwards knew that in the human you know, experience, what we love is what we choose. If we come on Sunday morning and we grab up a hymn book, we must 
take ourselves in hand, like Psalm 103. And the will must be exercised. We make a definite choice. I am intentional in this. I am going to worship the Lord in song. I am going to engage my intellect. I'm going to focus on what we're singing. I'm going to bring the heart, wake it up with, what, with these truths. These are truths worth living for. These are life and death. And I am going to choose to express that in the way that I sing out. And it is pleasing. All of you has been bought. All of you is to be engaged in worshiping God in song. Thoughts, deep affections or loves or desires, emotions, and our choices. All right, second principle. When we give our emotions, our affections, our, our, what we would call our heart, when we give our love to God through song, it is important that our, we understand the role of emotions and the part they play and how they have to be guided. Because music is so intimately, so easily linked with our present emotions, our passions, our desires, our feeling of love or fear, you know, anger, whatever it is, depending on what you're listening to on the radio, you can, you can be angry one minute and then, and then brokenhearted the next minute, sentimental the next minute. I remember as a kid going to watch Rocky III. You remember, I'm not recommending Rocky III, it's been so long. Mr. T, pity the fool, you know. Mr. T, before he got chubby, when he was scary, Mr. T, and he beats up Rocky, and then Rocky comes back and beats up Mr. T, and then the music's playing, Eye of the Tiger, and I come out of the theater, four foot nine, 88 pounds, sure that I could kill anybody on the planet. I could knock anybody out. If I could just reach him, I could knock him out too. Oh, and then I thought, everybody else coming out of the theater is all stirred up too. I probably better not act a little too stirred up, you know, I probably should calm myself down. Music affects the emotions, the passions. So how we handle music and song in church is really important since your emotions must be devoted to God. So the music that we use and the songs that we sing must help us devote ourselves to God if we're going to be pleasing in what we offer him in song. Now, let's discern when we think about emotions, a couple of things under this point. The difference between passions and affections. There's a book by a man named Scott Aniel. He is now the chief editor of G3 Ministries. He is heading up a whole new wing of G3 Ministries, G3 Plus online. And Scott's written, did a PhD in worship, and he's written a number of books on worship. And I've recently been reading through his book on worship and song is one of his earlier books. And he talks about the interplay of emotions. But one of the things he does is he goes back to older writers, okay, pre-enlightenment, like before the 1800s. He goes back to the earlier writers and talks about how people discussed our emotional makeup. They discussed our emotions in two categories, passions and affections. We don't do that, but it's a, it's a healthy distinction. We don't have to use those two terms but it's a healthy distinction, and I, I would probably use different terms. So what are passions? Passions are things that tend to be things that are surface level, easily stirred, you know, almost kind of chemical, physical reactions. So goosebumps, fear, lust, anger, excitement, strong cravings, anxiety. It's almost as if there's a, a physical reaction in us, and these are natural things. They're not necessarily sinful, but they are easily stirred, and they quickly flare up and quickly pass away. The surface level 
of your emotions. The shallow stuff. Again, not sinful, but it's not the kind of thing that we want to really focus on when we're giving God our hearts. We want to give him something deeper. I remember reading Robert Murray McShane, okay? Early 1800s, Scottish pastor in his 20s. He was kind of a classic scholar, and so he loved, you know, classical music. But he wrote a letter to a fella, and he said, listen, beautiful classical music, it can make the Christian's heart feminine, but it doesn't sanctify you. What he meant was, really beautiful music, it can, it can make the heart feel tender and soft. It can make your mood change, but it does not make you like Christ. So he was warning a person, even with beautiful, fine music, just because your mood changes when you listen to it doesn't mean you become more Christ-like. Which of us has not listened at some point in our life to Christian music and we've gotten all stirred up with some song that stirred the passions, kind of the shallow level, and we felt sentimental for Jesus and I want to live for Jesus. And within a few minutes, something happens in our life and we, we have this temper tantrum we went from crying and blubbering about Jesus to temper tantrum towards someone in our family within minutes. Those are passions, surface level. Then there's the affections. The affections are what we want to aim at because they're more enduring. They go deeper. They affect us. They're harder to cultivate. It takes longer they are the deeper delights of your soul, the deepest love, what you deeply value, what you deeply desire, not just for a moment and then, you, you know, like little kids, I want to get saved. I remember John David every once in a while, preteen, in his early years, you know, Chuck or me or Lanny, somebody preached a sermon and it bothered him. So on the way home, He's asking questions from the back of the car where he was exiled because he was so hard to travel with that when we had a Suburban, the back seat was such a sweet exile. It was like Patmos and we put him there and we say, we can't hear you, John David. He would say things like, um, Aaron, if dad, if, you and, if we have a wreck, are you and mom going to heaven, but I'm going to hell? And so we said, John David, that's not really the question. The question is, what will you do with Christ? And we went back over the gospel again. And he would be pretty distraught. And you would, as a parent, you might think, wow, the Lord's really convicted him. God's at work in this 11-year-old. Until we walked in the front door and he saw his Legos and he forgot about Jesus and now he was all about Legos. Those surface level things, they're not worth that much. The fears, the anxiety, the sentimental feelings. But the affections, what the old writers called the affections, the deep longings that are stirred and cultivated over a lifetime by focusing on things, as a Christian, the things of God that have real value. And so there, there's like a deep root system of love for him. There's a deep system of gratitude and appreciation for what he's done. And that's what we want to use, uh, you know, that's what we want to bring to God in our singing, and that's what we want to stir with our singing, the deep longings, the deep appreciation, the deep loves that endure. Which emotions are appropriate? Well, if truth is the fuel of the emotion or the affection or the love or desire then the emotions that are appropriately expressed in singing are the emotions that flow from the truths that the song is emphasizing. So if we're singing a hymn about the majesty of God, then perhaps the most appropriate emotion, the most deep gut level response to God is, God, I am filled with awe. I'm kind of dumbstruck. I'm God, I, some, I can't even sing this sentence because of, it's so amazing the, who you are compared to who we are. If the song is speaking about sin, 
it's appropriate for you to break your heart if the hymn that we're singing is about the cross. It's appropriate for you to grab hold of it with all your hope and express your gratitude to God. And if it's about the duty of the Christian life, it's appropriate for us to to stir our heart to determination. God, I will do your pleasure. The guide, of course, is the book of Psalms. You look at the book of Psalms. Here's all these songs and prayers written under God's guidance, so they're perfect. And the Psalms show the writer sometimes focusing on very sad things and sad emotions flow. And then sometimes he focuses on the greatness of God and there's a sense of fear and awe and trembling. And then he focuses on the mercies of God and there's a sense of gratitude. I think that churches that rename worship services as celebration services are off balance because it's not all celebration. The book of Psalms is not all celebration. You can think of Ian Murray's recent sermon. The whole gamut of human emotion is, can be sanctified, can be brought to God from brokenhearted questions to triumphant joy. But the truths we're singing should guide them. So, the content of what we sing each corporate worship service is essential. It must be truth that's biblical truth. The emotions that are moved, the deep affections, must be moved by these truths. Not just by the tune or by some beautiful voice. But it's not just content. It is. It, it is not just the what you're saying to God, but it is how you're saying it to God. It's not just the content. There is the tune which we want to match the content. Many of our hymns have Celtic tunes. Sometimes we use tunes for hymns that weren't originally used for them because they're simpler tunes. And some of those have that mournful note. The Celts love to write in minor keys, you know. The Germans wrote complex tunes. The Welsh and the Scots and the Irish wrote simple tunes, but they tended to be, they, at least they started in minor keys. And so we want, as we sing, we probably could work on that and I can't use my favorite, all my favorite Celtic tunes because they're all gloomy, but I like them, but Misty says they're gloomy. So we have to be careful. Tune ought to match the, um, the content, but it's not just what you're saying to God on Sunday morning, it's how you're saying it. That is part of whether it's accepted or not accepted. Let me give you a third big principle. If you have all this correct, the right content, right tune, you know, right doctrine, but you do not engage the deep affections of your soul, and it's just your intellect and your will that are, that are guiding your singing, but the heart is not really brought and stirred and dragged along. If it's a little cold, it's not awakened with truth, inflamed with the truth bent toward the truth, if it has no heart in it, it is unacceptable. I know we agree with that, but I want to point out a common trap for a church like ours, people like us. If you go traveling and you go to a church and they have a completely, on the, on the complete opposite end of the scale, a completely different approach to worship in song. Music style couldn't be more different. Words couldn't be more different. I've just come from Kenya, you know, a couple weeks ago, and the Kenyans love to sing. And the Africans always warn me. They say, this is Africa. We love to sing. I'm like, yeah, I know. So we sing and sing and sing and sing. But it's not just singing. It's dancing. And it's gyrating. And I'm standing on, you know, the the beside the pulpit here, I'm, I'm like up on the stage and the, the dance team's up on the stage and I'm there for an hour and 20 minutes of dancing and singing and we're all standing up and everybody in the crowd, they're Africans, they're dancing around and so I'm doing the John dance, right 
foot clap, left foot clap, and then I feel shame, right foot clap. Why am I doing this? I'm just doing this for them. Clap. You know, and the fellow that goes with me, a brother from Georgia, he's filming me and laughing at me, you know, and sending it to our friends. Now, cultural differences are, you know, that's not the issue. But what they do is they often sing choruses that have almost no content, and they will sing it over and over 30 or 40 times until, you know, the emotions are pretty stirred. Now, if we see a church that does that, if you go to a church, let's say this church next Sunday after this talk, Chuck and the other elders are quite surprised that when I get up to preach on Sunday morning, I've invited a rock group here and they just start blaring music and and your ears are hurting and it's somewhere in there, there's some religious words you would be really, probably really bothered. Like, why did we make the switch? Is that, do you think that honors God more than what we did the week before? And it's easy to look down our noses at people who get really emotionally worked up over very shallow, empty choruses. Not all choruses are shallow and empty and not all hymns are good. But, you know, they get really worked up over nothing. And we think, Why do you even go to a church like that? That's terrible. And if we did it here, you would say, that can't be what we're going to do. I'm not going to be here if that's every Sunday. But we don't get angry with ourselves if we come and open a hymnal that has some of the best songs that believers have written in any language over the last 500 years, some of them much older, and we mumble distractedly through them until it's over and we sit down. Which is more offensive to God? The group that gets really excited in Kenya over words that have almost no spiritual value or the group that is bored senseless with words that have life and death. Words that angels long to look into. Words that Old Testament believers wish they could have said. But we can say them. I'm not saying that that's what we do, but that is what we're tempted to. And so we have to guard against that. Engage your heart with the doctrine of the hymns. Do not leave it behind and think that it would be pleasing to the Lord, or at least more pleasing than if we brought a rock band in and warmed up singing old Eagles album songs and then a few, you know, choruses. Fourth principle, if we bring our worship to God in song, like any other expression of worship, we want to give our best. And that really is all anyone can ask. Now, that has to be defined by Scripture, not just what you think would be best, not what I think would be best. What does God think is best? But whatever, you know, the Scripture says, and we see those principles, and we labor by God's help, to give him the very best we can, even if, humanly speaking, it stinks. But if it's the best and it's guided by Scripture from a heart of love, mind, heart, and will are engaged, he is pleased. If we give our best, I have nothing more to ask, and none of the pastors would. But are we giving our best? It's a common part of worship that pleases God from Genesis to Revelation that we give our best, not just give what we can or give more than the person next to us, but do we give our best? The widow that gives a mite, a tiny coin, the penny of the day into the offering box, but it cost her greatly, gave her best. You know, the very wealthy man that gave thousands and he didn't even notice it was gone out of his account, didn't give his best. If we are determined by the grace and help of God, guided by the scripture, the word of God, to give him our best, then, then I, I, would, I could not hope for anything more from us as a church when it comes to worship. You remember the account that I mentioned before of David. He goes to worship the Lord, 
but he doesn't have anything for a sacrifice. There's a farmer. There's a, a cart pulled by oxen. Let me, let me buy that cart. Let me buy those oxen from you. And uh, I want to offer, you know, build an altar here and offer it them to the Lord as a sacrifice. And the man says, you're the king. You can have them. And David says, I will offer the Lord nothing that costs me nothing. I know that sounds foreign to, you know, Western ears, but it it ought not to. Surely we understand a little bit of that. I want to give something. And I I want the privilege of paying a cost. The cost that love is glad to pay. And I don't want someone else to pay it for me and hand it to me. Are we giving him our best in song? Worship always costs. The best is spelled out in scripture. So are we bringing that in the best way that we can? Now, in the Sunday morning service, there's, there are a lot of expressions of worship. So there's preaching, telling the worth of God. That's part of worship. So whoever's preaching, we all feel clearly every time that we failed to give God all that he deserves. But that doesn't mean that we didn't try to give him our best. And we trust that through the finished work of Christ... Our elder brother will present it to the father and cleansed and perfected through him our genuine effort to give God the best, to give God's people the best, that he will receive it. Preaching, prayer meeting, Sunday morning, that is hard work. To pray, to really pray, to really pray, to meet God in a room full of other people, watching you meet God, to meet God in harmony with other people, it is just really quite a task. But one reason that we're oftentimes silent, which is, to me, sad, but part of the reason is sometimes we're silent because we think, I I want to bring the very best, not for what people think about me, but because of Him and I don't want to just stroll up and throw out prayer number seven. And when we do pray and we sit down after we pray, we think, boy, that just was so different than what I hoped. My heart was full, you know, and and I went to bring it and express it with my words. And my, my full heart was far, far beneath what God deserves. By the time it got out of my mouth, it was so far beneath what was in my heart that I'm embarrassed, but Christ presents it. We see that in Revelation, taking the coals from the altar, the sacrifice of Christ, and taking the prayers of the saints and mixing them together before the throne of God. Our prayers, we feel, fall pretty far short of what God deserves. But we want to bring him our best now. Prayer meeting's over. Preaching hasn't yet happened, or maybe the preaching happened and it's, the, it's the, this, you know, the final hymn of the morning. We pick up a hymnal. Are we anywhere near as concerned to give him our best in our song? Or do we think anything we do is enough? Giving God our best in song. In Malachi chapter 1, we read Malachi together as a church, studied together a few years ago. You remember in Malachi chapter 1, one of the, one of the you know, uh, accusations that God brings against Israel is this. You bring me the, the least that you can get away with. You bring me the sick sheep. You bring me the leftovers of everything. You save the best for yourself and bring me the lame, the sick, the worthless, and you bring it to me and the priests take it and it's offered as a sacrifice, even though it doesn't meet the standards that God asks for in his word. And God says, do you think that I'm pleased with that? Do you think I have ever accepted one of those? And he gives them a a kind of a, a test. Why don't you take and give to your king or your governor, you know, your local ruler, why don't you give him the worst. He, 
you know, the government says you give us, you owe us this and you give them the worst that you can give and see if your king is pleased. Is a father honored by that kind of treatment? Yet I'm God. That's chapter one. God does not receive that kind of offering. To come and sing these great truths, but not to engage the heart, the mind, and the will, to just mumble through distractedly, it's giving God the very least that we can afford to give and not look pagan. And God's response in Malachi's day was this. I wish someone knew me well enough to lock the church doors because I would rather you not come into the temple if you're going to come in and do that. So what if we locked all the doors the week after we mumbled through our hymns? And again, I don't think everyone mumbles through the hymns. But if we did, if we're okay with that. Chapter 2 of Malachi, though. Chapter 1, I wish you'd just lock the church. You're not bringing me the best. Chapter 2, you priests who accept, end of chapter 1, into chapter 2, who accept this inappropriate sacrifice on my behalf as a representative of God, I will humiliate you in front of everyone. Because you have accepted on my behalf things that I don't accept. So we apply it today, not to animals that are spotless and the best sheep and whatever. What about song? We come together, we take up our hymnal, we look at the truths, we have a, we have a chance to thoughtfully engage the emotions, let the heart be stirred by that truth, choose to express God's worth to him through that song together. What if we decide that we don't have to give him that? And the preachers, the pastors, me, Chuck, the others, we act like everything's great because you're nice to us, because everybody showed up today. What if God says, you know, the pastors of this church, I will humiliate you. I'll let the world know that I hold you and I, I lightly esteem you. I, I don't value your ministry here at all because you keep accepting something far beneath what I deserve. Offering God our best. Let me say, if we're going to give God our best on Sunday morning, it is rare that a person can give anybody the best without some preparation. I can't imagine many areas in life where you could give your best, your best effort, your best response, your best whatever, to give your best off the cuff. No, no preparation at all. You had time to prepare, you didn't do it. You just got hit and you say, well, this is it. And people say, wow, that was your best. No, they think, you just shot from the hip. You didn't prepare at all. That was not your best. Even if it was impressive, it's not your best. In worship, in worship, in song, how we prepare our hearts before we arrive at church might be the critical linchpin, you know, might be the most significant element in whether when we stand up with our hymnal, we can really be wholly engaged giving God our best worship. So we want to be consistent in sending you the hymns or the passages, you know, that'll be considered on Sunday. So as parents, you can, you can sit down with kids on Saturday evening and say, this is, we're going to be giving God these words back tomorrow. Now, some of these are big, if you have little kids, some of these are big words. Let's talk about them. Or if you have older, you know, young adult children, or if it's just you and your spouse and the kids have all grown up, to sit together and say, how can we prepare our hearts to give God our best worship and song tomorrow morning when we arrive? Some of you have been meeting together for what you call Sabbath suppers, which someone asked me, what does that mean? I said, I don't know. I never heard of Sabbath suppers. But meeting together on Saturday evening with other believers in the church, just inviting a few families over, different families at different times, for the purpose of just fellowshipping together and then preparing the hearts for the next morning. That is such a great idea. I would not thought of that. But just spending some time with some other Christians, 
with the purpose of being prepared to give our best in the morning. Again, we don't have to be the best singers. We don't have to sound great to anybody else. But if we give our best to him, if we've prepared our hearts and the things we've talked about, he will be pleased. Let me give you the last one. If you're going to sing in corporate worship, you have to realize you have two audiences. Of course, there is God's ear, and that is primary. That's what we focus on. The other audience will happen without focus. The pleasure of our God, that's all that matters in our focus. But while we're focusing on the worth and the pleasure of our God, the Bible says, remember Ephesians 5, speaking to each other, okay, don't get drunk and be, you know, don't have a life controlled like the world does by, you know, by alcohol and don't be filled like that. Be filled with the spirit. Speak to each other. And then it says in hymns and in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And Paul's telling the Ephesians that how they, that they can talk to each other in corporate worship in a way that helps each other. And that will fill and motivate them. Unlike the lost person who's filled and motivated by some, you know, by alcohol or whatever it was. Now, is Paul talking about two different things? Teach each other and also sing. The, the singing is the speaking to each other, even though it's directed at God. So, we've mentioned this before. How we sing together in worship does not only please the Lord, but it also benefits the people around us. It's simple, isn't it? When you pick up a hymn, and like the psalmist, Psalm 103, you kind of take your soul in hand and say, look, soul, look at those truths. Wake up, shake off that sluggish sleepishness. Turn away from those lies, the false friendship of the world, the emptiness of sin's temptation, the despair of a guilty conscience. Look at Christ, and, and the heart is engaged. So in a sense, as you're reading the hymn, you're preaching to yourself and doing your soul much good as you're expressing it to God. But you're also, you have an opportunity to do everyone around you good, and they see you captured with these truths, singing to God, and they're encouraged. Or it's a lost person that sees you, and they think, why? Why do these people get so excited about these things in this hymnal? I'm not excited. I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of Christian, and it begins to bother them. The, the weary believer looks around, and he sees other believers grabbing hold of those truths and expressing it to God, and their soul is strengthened. The drifting believer sees other believers warm-hearted toward God, convicted about their coldness. They repent. They're helped. Every time we stand and sing on Sunday or a Wednesday, you are speaking to each other loudly. You are giving a message. You're passing on a message to each other to the preacher that's leading you. It can be a message that says, look at my God, he's worth all of it. Or it can be a message that says, I don't think that this God is everything he's cracked up to be, and I'm really eager to get this over with. What kind of a message does it send when a dad is sitting and his kids are beside him and mom is singing, heart, eyes toward God and dad is mumbling and looking at the kids and kind of, you know, playing around a little, looking at other kids in the church, smiling at the babies. And he sits back down after mumbling through another hymn. It is so loud, the message. God is just not really worth it, guys. But we need to be polite. How you worship the Lord in song is not just for the pleasure of God. It can, it does carry such a message to your family sitting next to you, to the people behind you, to the people on the other side of the pews, to the people that turn around and look at you, to the preacher. 
I have so many times, you know, and I hope I'm hardly, I hope I'm never mic'd, but even unmiked, you people in the first rows, you can tell that sometimes I'm singing a different verse. I'm like, what, what verse is John on? Like, don't pay attention to John, right? Just keep looking at your book. But sometimes it's because, you know, with ADD, I'm looking out and I see people that say they love the Lord so bored with God, with the things they're singing. And I just, it kind of shocks me. And the next thing I know, I'm mumbling words that um, it's the wrong, t- wrong, you know, wrong verse. You affect people. This message you send out. Do you think that if Chuck preaches Sunday and tells everybody how worthy God is, and you get up and your friend's sitting next to you, you're a businessman, he's a businessman, you're a housewife, she's a housewife, and you are mumbling through, bored and distracted, Singing, do you think that the person watching you and listening to Chuck will believe Chuck and ignore you? Maybe. But they know Chuck gets paid. And so the, the worldling or the weak Christian hears this. Well, Chuck gets paid to talk that way. Chuck buys books that talk that way. Chuck has a Bible that talks that way. If he didn't talk that way, he'd lose his job. He's paid to act that way. But people that aren't paid, like your friend right here, well, they're bored to death with God. Chuck says he's worth it. Their actions, they're telling me he's not worth it. Who do you believe? The paid person? The unpaid person? There are ways to preach to every person around you on Sunday morning the worth of God without ever turning and saying something to to them directly. Just by how... You engage mind and heart and will in worshiping and giving God your best in singing. Over the next weeks, we hope to be able to send out some some helpful suggestions, maybe about, you know, worship, and some of those will be in song. Let me just say one more and then we're done. We do have a spread out style building. You know, we have a We don't have a fan-shaped building, which would be easier. We have a long building. So our sanctuary, if you're sitting in the back, it's easy to be kind of vocally disconnected. And so I've noticed that if I'm sitting in the first five rows, I think, man, singing got better this week. It's pretty good. Everybody's kind of joining in. I mean, it doesn't sound beautiful all the time, but everybody's joining in. And then... On Wednesday night, I sit by Misty, being backslidden, she moves way to the back. So I sit by Misty, and I'm just seeing if you're awake. And she and I are back there, and I, the back half, not because the back half doesn't love the Lord, but if you're kind of spread out from other people, it can kind of be intimidating to sing out, because you think, I'm the only voice around here, you know, and I don't really want to sing a solo. If you're kind of smushed in with the crowd, it's easier to join in. It's not a spiritual thing. It's just human nature. I would suggest that when we have gaps in the room, like we do tonight, that, you know, you kind of fill in the pews toward the first half. If you can, some of you have children, some of you have reasons that you need to be in the very back. That's understandable. But if you don't have to be, why not move up to the front half? And we're squished together a little more. And I think you'll find it's much easier to sing out like you want to without being so self-conscious. Well, Psalm 119, 108. Oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord. That's our prayer too. Let's pray. God, grant us hearts so full that it's our delight to give and give and give to you what you give to us first love, for your pleasure, for our soul's good, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.